It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I'm David Asman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. I'm Eben Brown. Ukraine's president comes to Washington in hopes of winning more military aid in its fight against Russia. But has the U.S. backing of Ukraine helped to bolster its image of freedom's defender? You didn't get that message after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The message after that was we were a weak, unreliable partner. And we've been able to flip that script in Ukraine. This is the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday visited Washington, including President Biden, in hopes of the U.S. government allocating another $100 billion or so to supply his military in their fight against Russian invaders. It is a war that has cost hundreds of thousands of lives, billions of dollars, and it has been going on for nearly two years in its current form. It has many American taxpayers wondering, to what end? The Ukrainians have not expelled Russia from um, eastern Ukraine or from Crimea yet. I do think we need to remember, though, they did defeat a Russian attempt at a complete invasion of the country. Retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery once authored the U.S. readiness plans to defend Taiwan from China. He is now with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he talks to us about where our money actually goes, how it helps Ukraine's war efforts, and how, at all, it helps the U.S. They have began to gradually push back at some of the limited gains that Russia made in their initial uh, foray in uh, February of 2022. Um, And... You know, for what is essentially um, 3.5% of our defense budget over the last 18 months, uh, we've seen the Ukrainians do significant damage to the Russian armed forces. Um, and, you know, you cannot understate the impact that the loss of equipment, um, frontline fighting units, um, a loss of confidence in their ability to do um you know, large-scale maneuver warfare and combined air-ground operations has on the, on the you know, it, and how it reflects on Russia's ability to maybe do further on actions against Baltic states or Poland or Georgia. You know, uh, in, in the case of Baltic states in, in Poland, you know, NATO countries where we would have to come to their, um, their rescue. So I would say Ukraine has done a lot with a little. And, uh, and that should be recognized. And, and they're still in a position to inflict significant territorial loss on Russia in eastern Ukraine and Crimea if they're equipped with the, if they have the proper equipment and the capacity and resources to do so. I, I think we look at these uh, continual aid packages for Ukraine and most people know them only by the dollar amounts and not knowing exactly how that money is spent. Or where it's spent. Uh, and in some cases, I would I would estimate that it's or I would believe that it's spent in terms of weapons credits. But in other ways, it's in, in, in ways of aid and economic aid to Ukraine's economy to try to keep it moving in the midst of a war. 
Um, but could you tell us how this money is being spent or is there is there a good way to track it or is there no good way to track it might be the the other way to ask this question. Now that that's a fair question, and a lot of this look the the administration's not fantastic at like painting the clearest picture of this. But if you look at somewhere you know north of a hundred ten billion dollars in assistance over the last eighteen months, sixty um, billion of which was security, of which about forty five billion uh, forty seven billion was kind of equipment to Ukraine or supplies to Ukraine. The rest was military support in terms of flying things around. You know, U.S paying for its own military's operations. Right. But let's take a look at that 48 billion. That's what people really concentrate on, you know, equipment being purchased. This is almost exclusively American equipment. I mean, uh, or, you know, a, a few things are dual, you know, dual nation, but it's really, you know, almost 100% American equipment. And what it is, is we do it through two broad things. One is called presidential drawdown authority. But let's say the army has 155 millimeter rounds, artillery rounds, they have javelin anti-armor weapons. They have stinger air defense weapons. Those older systems are drawn down from the Army, often 10, 15, 20, 25-year-old pieces of gear and, and either equipment. This includes like strike, you know, um, vehicles like strikers or M1A1 tanks right. or, or um, Jeep, Humvee Jeeps, you know, those kind of weapons and systems. And they're transferred. They're taken from the Army in their older state and transfer to the Ukrainians for the Ukrainians to use in combat. The good thing about presidential drawdown authority is it gets the stuff to Ukraine fast, weeks or months at the most. And um, and we then reorder the equipment for the U.S. Army. So a few months or a year or two or three years later, a new piece of equipment, shiny piece of equipment comes in for the U.S. Army. Right. And all that stuff is, is uh, almost uniquely procured from U.S. Uh, companies. Um, you know, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, you know, the list, the, the normal list. Um, and then the second way we get it is called the uh, Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. That's another, you know, of that 48 billion, that's another 25, 27 billion that is orders from these companies that could take anywhere from one to three years or even longer to fill. And again, that is buying something from those companies to be shipped directly to Ukraine, never owned or operated by the U.S. Army or, or Air Force or Marine Corps or Navy, but sent directly to them. And again, that money is spent almost exclusively in at U.S. You know, companies and firms, you know, where we build weapon systems, Florida, right. Texas, uh, Arkansas, Georgia, Arizona, you know, California. Those are the big states for, for procurement. It's all over the United States, but really heavily concentrated there. So what I'd say is, you know, about 50% of this money goes to security and, and, and procurement of goods. They either come from the U.S. Army or from U.S. companies. But inevitably, the money is spent in U.S. firms uh, resupplying. Is there a risk uh, to our own uh, national readiness, uh, military readiness otherwise, uh, by sending these uh, these equipment to uh, to Ukraine for their use, uh, and I, I ask really for two reasons: one, do we have enough of what we need when we need it? Uh, and the other issue is operational security. Uh, we've heard reports throughout these past two years that some of this stuff goes missing; it ends up in black markets, uh, and there's concern about 
for instance, Hamas terrorists holding what uh, in photographs what don't appear to be AK-47s, but M-16s. Uh, so is there uh, is there a real security factor here that's not being addressed or is it being addressed as best as it can be? So I'll break that down and say, yeah, first, um, uh, does it impact U.S. readiness? Look, we, we know the minimum. There are minimal you know, retention rates for any weapon system the United States uh, maintains. Um, and it's based on war plans and things. And we usually have some excess of that. And that's so that we can have stuff positioned in different parts of the world. So it's a little closer than you'd expect. Right. But we're, we've pretty carefully managed that. Um, and so I, I think that um, I think that this is, you know, it's reasonable to assume that the United States is not breaking any of its what are called weapons munitions floors. You know, what's the lowest level you can be at? Do I think this has taken us closer to floors in some weapon systems like 155? Stinger, which is not used a lot by U.S. forces, but it can be um, javelin, uh, anti-armor. Yes, the numbers have come down closer to the floor, but I don't think we're violating anything there. And we are re-procuring those things now with newer systems. In fact, we hadn't built a Stinger since 2005, uh, you know, before this this started. So, I mean, some of these weapon systems were old. Okay, that's the first issue. I don't think it impacts our readiness in that regard. And and um, and the, the second issue is, you know, do, do, is there an operational loss? Yes. Uh, but the stuff you're seeing in Hamas's hands is much more likely things we left behind in our um, uh, unsuccessful, expedited, embarrassingly chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. We left billions of dollars of equipment behind. Right. That is nothing in Ukraine compares to that, you know, which happened five months earlier. Right. You know, November, you know, October excuse me, August, September of 21, then the uh, invasion in February of 22. That that was a much bigger compromise of equipment than anything you can imagine in Ukraine. And, and for people to be, you know, be, you know, hand-wringing over, Ukraine, you know, possible operational security losses in Ukraine, let, let me just set that aside and say, that's not the, you know, that's not the thing you're looking for. The, the, what you're looking for is our complete abject failure and withdrawing from Afghanistan successfully. Um, um, and and that was where we lost way too much equipment and left way too many things behind. Um, if I could comment on one other thing. Sure. You know, I've heard people say, oh, hey, uh, you know, these these munitions, um, the, these munitions are putting us at risk for being able to execute our Taiwan uh, war plans. Look, I wrote our Taiwan war plans for years as the, as the head of operations at U.S. Pacific Command. Uh, that nothing could be further from the truth. We do not have a problem, and you know, our, our Ukraine is not causing a problem with our Taiwan war plans. If anything, it's enhancing our Taiwan war plans. And here's why: it's a two-step issue. Yeah, please. Number one, please tell. <laughs> we had way too few munitions in 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 uh, Taiwan in a Taiwan scenario. Way too few the long-range anti-ship called El Rasms. Way too few harpoons. Way too few SM6 missiles. Which I could go through every weapon system that I needed in war plans I wrote for Taiwan. And in my mind, we had way too few on hand to defeat a growing adversary. And we had we were building munitions at 25 and 30 percent of 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 uh, maximum production level. But we did it for so long that the factories actually lowered their maximum production levels down to the minimum sustainment levels we were using. So even if we had wanted to change our mind, we couldn't change it rapidly if a war started, right? Right. Well, here's what Ukraine explained that to us in 155 and Javelin 
And, and so we're actually, for the first time in 20 years, you know, this was a bipartisan failure over four administrations, and we're now finally fixing it. Congress and the administration are increasing our maximum production rates at plants by investing in the plants. They're increasing the confidence the plants have um, in, in, um, in building, uh, you know, in, in, in consistent con- uh, procurement uh, requests from the U.S. government by having multi-year um, production uh, procurement uh, uh, contracts. And we're, and we're raising the amount we're trying to produce each year to the maximum. So through those three different, you know, effects, increasing investment in the plant size, in, uh, giving multi-year contracts and met raising production levels to the maximum, all three of those things come together to restore our munitions level in the Pacific to what we need for war fighting. So in fact, it's the op- Ukraine has been helpful. And the second way it's been helpful is the United States said it was going to do something. You know, when Ukraine was invaded, the president said, right. we will provide the equipment that you need. Now, to the degree that we continue to do that, and the president provides the right equipment, which he does not always do, we will be sending a strong message that we're a credible partner to Ukraine. And if you're Taiwan or Japan or Korea or the Philippines, you're receiving that same message. And believe me, you didn't get that message after the withdrawal from you from Afghanistan. The message after that was we were a weak, unreliable partner. And for the and we've been able to flip that script in Ukraine. As long as we keep up our support, we will we will show ourselves to be a credible, strong partner. We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, now with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, on how much money the U.S. is spending on Ukraine defense and how it might actually benefit the United States. On the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition, we'll have more straight ahead. There had always been, and whether or not this was actual military doctrine or just pop culture, but this idea that the United States could fight two wars at once, and essentially did that in World War II. Um, here we have a war that we are assisting with in Ukraine. We have a war that we're assisting with in the Middle East. And then there's this risk of of war in, in Southeast Asia w- with regard to Taiwan. Um, are we in a good enough position where we could uh, affect the defense of these three uh, allies, if you will, if that's the right word for them? Uh, I mean, can we can we do that? Are we better equipped to do that now than we were two years ago, uh, as per what you've just been detailing? So that's a great question. I think I love your lead in talking about World War Two. Yeah, because the reality is at the beginning of World War Two, even through the first two years of World War Two, we were not ready to fight on both fronts. We, we kind of famously Churchill and uh, and uh, Roosevelt had to prioritize the European theater over the Pacific theater. So it wasn't until. We really got our engine of the demo- arsenal of democracy, the original arsenal of democracy going, that we were actually able to fight that two-front war. And at that point, by the way, our GDP is our our defense spending as a percentage of GDP was, you know, between 10 and 20 percent, right? I mean, right. it was massive. Um, so the, the, the answer to the question is we're not ready to simultaneously fight two massive wars in two different theaters right now. What we are, you know, what we do try to be able to do is fight one war and keep another one contained, right? So we can then put our forces against that second one. I mean, but realistically, that would be if we were fighting two major powers. That that Middle East one with Iran is a different, it's a smaller fight. Um, But, you know, the the question of, are we ready to fight two, you know, major regional contingencies simultaneously? Probably not. 
But are we better now ready for any single uh, contingency, no matter where it is, whether it's in Europe, Asia, or the Middle East? The answer is, of course we are, because we're fixing our munitions problems. And, and are we more ready to handle one major and one minor simultaneously? Yes. And are we in a better position to fight one major and kind of contain one major at the same time? Yes. Uh, we are definitely in a better position. Uh, Ukraine has been a very um, illuminating operation in terms of understanding our weaknesses, um, our logistics challenges, and where our strengths are as well. So, you know, in that regard, uh, you know, um, we are in a better position now than we were in February of 2022. Tired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery now with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thank you so much for being with us on the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.